fighting the horrible madness of war. We need to stop bombing people's homes. It's not anti-European. Stop sending arms into conflict zones. It's common sense. Millions of Europeans struggle to feed their families and heat their homes. All wars are evil and all victims deserve support. And until we get on that page, we have no credibility whatsoever. When he is going to wake up and start living in the real world? Thank you. Hello, welcome back to another episode of I Foresee Trouble. We're here back in Brussels after a very busy week organizing a lot of events. We're going to tell you a little bit more soon, but we don't want to spoil too much. Now, what I'd like to know is who are you? <laughs> no one knows who you are. Come on, tell them who you are. Um, I'm Maria, I'm from Barcelona and I'm probably going to be your new host. I'm from Barcelona. Ooh, that reminds wow. me of Fawlty Manuel. Towers. Manuel. Manuel. No, we dealt with him before. You ever seen that, did you? We've I've never seen that, no. We talked uh, about you him haven't before. Lived. I Manuel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The man from Barcelona. Name. Very oh, derogatory. Yeah. Don't mind him. He's from Barcelona. It kind of means he's only in Egypt anyway. Like, oh, God help great. him. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we obviously don't subscribe to that view. Mm. But maybe there's a bit, teach us a bit. In fairness, Irish people like... Catalonia. So a little bit of you could be teaching them a little bit of Catalan language, uh-huh. which is in the news now. People just may in case our listeners come to Barcelona, they want to practice. Well, considering bit. it's one of the most tourist visited places in That's the true. world and Europe, there's a good chance a few of them might. So, what would they say if they wanted to introduce themselves to somebody? <laughs> um, okay, so I'm Dick Mireya. That would be me. So that my name is. In I'm Spanish, Deke. yeah, exactly. That's okay. easy. And how would a Spanish person say that? Me llamo Mireya. Okay, very I'm different. Deke. So I'm no, Deke. A little bit. I'm Deke. I'm Deke. I'm Deke. Mick. I'm Deke. And spell it. E M space D I C. I'm Deke. I'm Deke. Me llamo. The Spaniards say. Yeah. Me llamo. Me llamo. In Italian, me llamo. Close but anyway, it's interesting because language, I mean, people may not know, but obviously Irish is one of the languages of the European Union. Sadly, not many of our citizens speak it or not enough. They succeeded in killing it. So when you think that there are 10 million people who speak Catalan and it's not a recognised language here, it is really important. So people can learn their Catalan for next time. Mm-hmm. But enough already. And big. Big. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we have a few topics that we want to discuss today. Um, I don't know where you want to start. It's so hard to pick the EU disgracing itself on so many fronts and so little time to discuss it. But I, I suppose make the, the boys coming in uh, at the start of the week to give a public hearing from the European defence industry. Uh, the bag men and women of the arms industry in before. So actually, yeah, there were women as well. So, what do you think? We had fun, didn't we, really? Oh, Jesus. I mean, um, it, was, it, it was incredible, really, you know. I mean, um, you would think they were selling wheelbarrows, you know. I mean, they make machines to kill people. They are designed to kill people. And we pointed out to them, uh, they obviously got uh, loads of claps on the back uh, from everyone else, but... Um, we weren't really in the mood for clapping them on the back. And um, we challenged the fact that, you know what, uh, you guys love war and uh, you can't make money unless there's war. And I made the, uh, the analogy. I said, uh, I said, if I made raincoats and umbrellas, I said, sure, I'd never be able to sell them if it didn't rain. I said, and you guys make arms, tanks, 
fighter planes, God knows what. And I said, ye sell more of them when there's war, so ye promote war and yous love war. But they wouldn't admit it. They were just in denial, like, but it was just nonsense stuff, like, oh, God. Well, I mean, I think it, it was heartbreaking listening to them. They try to say that they only make it, but they hope it'll never be used, which is just oh, such Jesus a baby's Christ lie. Almighty. Because the whole presentation was based on the fact that their military stocks are being depleted, that there are enormous opportunities for the military-industrial complex across Europe to make serious amounts of cash, and that it was a project which not just the big players in the in the main six EU countries which produce arms and so on, but that there were opportunities there for smaller countries as well. I mean, it was quite disgusting, and, and people should be aware that Europe's defence policy originated in a public forum which was called the Group of Personalities whereby the EU sought um, an answer for its security concerns going forward and the people they called to define that most of them came from the defence industry so unsurprisingly then they decided that the solution was more arms more so, so called uh, independent uh, mm. experts mm. and it was just stocked with fellows from the industry mm. Uh, oh yeah, as you say, surprise, surprise, they were all on for the European Union spending buckets more money uh, building up uh, arms stock. Which they have because that yeah. process started 10 years ago and it's now on turbocharge since the war in Ukraine. And I think it's interesting because they were very uncomfortable with the line of question and particularly from Mick where he said you're talking about all this military hardware but you haven't at all mentioned the people who are going to be using this the war of attrition the people dying and they clearly didn't like that they were very uncomfortable and they were trying to say now look at we're anti-war as well kind of <laughs> they said but the whole purpose of this is to act as a deterrent now this is absolute rubbish if that was one of their lines and their other line was well Ukraine wants us to do this so what can we do we're just helping, you know. Now, I'm sure the women who are losing their husbands and their sons and um, their fathers don't want this at all. They want the war to end. But these people want the war to keep going because they patently said there can be no cessation until recla Ukraine reclaims back every bit of its territory, which is just not going to happen. Uh, and sadly, Ukrainians are dying at a rate of maybe a thousand a week now, 2000, some people say they are literally mowing through equipment and men and they don't care as long as it keeps going. And that's all it was about, the contracts, the money, the amount of money going in. It's it's endless. And of course, mm. we're, that's dealing with one side. The other side is the people at home in Ireland and other places in Europe who are going to be paying for this who are suffering the cost of living crisis and all the rest. And it's, it's, it's sickening beyond belief. Yeah, I was actually the last MEP uh, to ask questions. And so there was actually two rounds of questions, right? But I actually came in at the end. And I said to them, I said, there's three of you, I said. You've both, you've all three of you have spoken twice. Not one of you, I said, have mentioned anything about the people dying in Ukraine. Not one of you, and you have both, you've, all three of you have spoken uh, twice. I, I, I said, how can you be so disconnected from the impact of this military hardware? And I said, the idea that you don't like war and that you don't want war and that this was that you don't that you don't promote war is nonsense. I said, it doesn't stack up to any common sense argument. And just to back that up, right? Uh, 
there's there's a, a very interesting quote from the NATO boss Stoltenberg from two weeks ago. He was in with us at the Foreign Affairs Committee, and and uh, and and secure it was and security and defence, right? And when he was talking about the start of the war and all, he, this is a quote from Stoltenberg. The background was that President Putin declared in the autumn of 2021 and actually sent a draft treaty that they wanted NATO to sign to promise no more NATO enlargement. That was what he sent us and it was a precondition for not invading Ukraine. And he says, of course we didn't sign it. The opposite happened, he said. He wanted us to sign that promise never to enlarge NATO. He wanted us to remove our military infrastructure uh, in all the allies that have joined NATO since '97, meaning half of NATO, all the Central and East European ones, which are close to Russia's border, right? We should remove NATO from that part of the alliance, introducing some kind of B or second class membership. We rejected that. So he went to war to prevent NATO, more NATO close to his borders. But he's got the opposite, he said. So, in other words, they're actually admitting that the war was provoked. He's, he's literally, and that they wanted the war to happen. They refused to entertain Russia's uh, appeal to stop expanding NATO uh, uh, around their borders. And they, he's boasted about the fact that, of course, we didn't agree to that. Uh, so we had a war instead. I think that piece was really relevant and has been picked up by a lot of outlets and anti-war activists and uh, agencies around the world, actually. Um, who want to see this war picked up on that intervention, which does show actually that sometimes the platform is useful. And again, we were the only two people challenging him as we were the only people challenging the guys the other day. But I mean, again, it's the same thing. Their idea that, well, if we're weak, then the invaders will come is actually the opposite of, of the truth because Ukraine had previously been neutral. It had previously got a much smaller, more poorly uh, organised army and nothing happened and now and in the subsequent years since 2014 and beyond they have been pumping in record amounts of money they're actually one of the strongest armies in Europe and yet the invasion happened because precisely the reason Mick said because of NATO provocation not because of anything else so I mean I think When Stoltenberg came in uh, it was either June or July he actually he actually boasted that time as well. He says, we just didn't start... NATO, he said, we didn't start uh, uh, helping Ukraine just when the war started. He says, we've been in Ukraine since 2014, and that was when the Americans organised a coup, the elected uh, president was was thrown out, and the Americans admitted spending $5 billion uh, uh, orchestrating the coup over a number of years. But Stoltenberg boasted that NATO had been in Ukraine since 2014, building this army for this confrontation with Russia. And in 2021, the year before the war started, uh, military spend in Ukraine was over 5% of GDP. The average in Europe was 1.7% of GDP. Ukraine was over 5%. They were spending more than double anyone else in Europe was spending on defence already in 2021, before the war. I mean... It is so obvious that this thing uh, has been orchestrated for a long period. Absolutely. And I mean, there is, you know, it was a real feature. I was at the Stop the War Coalition AGM in London on Saturday. And I think that idea of the war of attrition was very strong. I think people are beginning to see through a lot of the propaganda 
uh, to see that it's ordinary Ukrainians who are losing out and that, um, you know, even developments in the States itself where there's maybe the beginning of people getting a bit fed up of uh, Zelensky and his antics that talk about another 25 billion coming from US taxpayers to keep the war going. The enthusiasm is drying out in the US for that. And actually, across parts of Europe, it's drying out as well. So, um, yeah, challenging well, it, times. It, it isn't drying out uh, with our mainstream media who still can't get enough of it. Mm. And uh, speaking of mainstream media, someone highlighted to me the other day, just on a separate subject, uh, RTE had a, um, done a piece, I think it was on Monday morning, on Libya. And they were discussing the fact that Libya wasn't able to uh, cope very well uh, because of, uh, you know, bad governance over the last number of years. And they weren't able to cope very well with the environmental disaster that's hit the country. I got a transcript of the piece, and it was about seven pages in the transcript. The word NATO and the NATO invasion in 2011 wasn't mentioned once. Now, I mean... This was a country, it was the most prosperous country in Africa in 2011. And it was bombed back to the Stone Age illegally by NATO. It was destroyed and there's been untold destruction right across the country. And it's had a massive impact on all the countries around it. And they were talking about Libya and the problems it faced. And they never mentioned the fact that NATO uh, horrifically destroyed the place in 2011 and done untold damage and killed thousands. Not a word. Well, I mean, Libya is a failed state now, and unfortunately it's looking like that's the future that lies ahead for Ukraine as well. But it's because it's a failed state, it has been ill-equipped and unprepared and incapable, actually, of dealing with the catastrophic flooding that has taken place there. But it is interesting that NATO's invasion has also destabilised, and we've touched on this subject before here, so we won't repeat it, but it destabilised the whole of the Sahel region and has led to the massive influx of, of refugees and that, which have been obviously added to by the catastrophic climate crisis in in uh, Libya now and the repression in Tunisia. But they, this has hit the headlines again because of the thousands arriving on Lampedusa and Ursula von der Leyen coming out again with her sort of fortress Europe arriving out on Lampedusa, pretending to be a friend of Italy, talking about possible military blockades even. The only good thing she said was the need for other countries to um, involve themselves in relocation, but there's no appetite for that. So again, you can see for all of the talk of solidarity across the EU, it's a hypocritical gathering, you know? Monstrous. Just, I mean, you had mentioned RTE as well, Mick, but I mean... I don't know what you thought, but we, of course, this week was the doll coming back. Lucky bastards, considering we're back here about five weeks at this stage, that they're only back. But that's another story. But uh, the first day of the doll was met with big protests around the doll. And the media reaction to this was something else, I think. Yeah, the, t the talks of uh, creating a space, uh, um, a protest-free space. In other words, it'll be illegal to protest in certain areas. I mean, I don't, I don't know whether they're going to bring it in or not, but this is this is mad. Like, I mean, this is in... Uh, th th that's authoritarian uh, in its approach. And, I mean, maybe they won't bring it in, but it's, it's scary that they're even talking about it. Well, I, it's mental because the whole portrayal of the events 
was a bit like you'd be thinking it was like Trump supporters invading Capitol Hill. I mean, this is the way it was presented, that our democracy was under attack and um, parliamentarians from across the houses were decrying the fact that they'd been locked in the doll and they couldn't get out and it was desperate for the staff. But if you read the media coverage, there wasn't a single report about why the people were there or what the issues they were given out about. Now, undoubtedly, a hint and a thread in all of this is that there were far-right elements uh, orchestrated in that protest to incite sort of violence. And I don't want to diminish that at all. I think there have been reports of far-right elements organising in Ireland in a more serious way than they have done for a very long time. But the reason why they're growing is precisely because of a response like the media and the establishment are doing here because ordinary people in Ireland are massively alienated from what's going on, from the war, from the way COVID was handling. They're really suffering. They're crying out for some sort of attention and all they're getting is, oh, you're racist, you're a climate denier, you're an anti-vaxxer, you're a, an idiot. And their problems of housing, health care, social work are not being addressed. And, and unfortunately, then that can be dragged in the direction of a sort of a, a racist response. But I, I think it's really. Yeah. And, and the, the, there is a fear that if you label them all, it might, you might think it suits to label them all as, oh, they're all just mad far right. And yes, yeah, some of them are mad far right, but a whole lot of them are not. And labeling them all that way is dangerous because one of the fears is that you'll drive more of them in that direction and you'll strengthen uh, the position of the far right, unfortunately, uh, with that approach. And we already see it with policies in the European Union. We have elections next June and it is a given that the far right, in, in the European continent anyway, on the mainland, the far right are expected to make serious gains in the next election. Mm. Uh, I don't actually see it happening in Ireland. I, I'd be very surprised if there's a, a so-called far-right figure would get elected, but I don't know. I'd be very surprised. But I'm just saying that uh, there's measures and decisions have been taken uh, at European institutional level here that are actually driving more people into the arms of the far right. And that's really worrying. Unquestionably. And the focus has to be on the real issues that people are really suffering over, many of them caused by the likes of the war. But no, I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. But I mean, on Ukraine, I mean, you were spent a good bit of the week in a dungeon arguing again for more public money to go into rebuilding Ukraine, the Ukraine facility or something, wasn't it? Oh, God, yeah. Um, it's actually a huge uh, issue, right? And uh, I I'm the shadow. Uh, there's seven shadows for the parliament for from the Foreign Affairs Committee and there's seven from the Budget Committee. And uh, we had two long sessions this week uh, arguing over the legislation that was is, that will be put in place. Um What's this for now? It's called the Ukraine facility. Now, people will know that in June, by, by June 2023, which is three months ago, four, three or four months ago, the European Union had already spent 72 billion on Ukraine. And now we're creating a facility uh, worth 50 billion that has to go towards mainly the reconstruction of Ukraine. Now, we've also agreed... 20 billion mm. for more arms for Ukraine over the next four years. But that's separate. Hold on a minute. Let me make my point on it. 
they are we are agreeing to spend a, a minimum of five billion alone on military aid to Ukraine each year for the next four years, and we're doing it whether the war stops or not. So that's twenty billion we're going to put in on the military end, and now we're going to spend a minimum of fifty billion. Uh, between now and 2027 on reconstruction. So we're going to spend 20 billion helping to destroy the place. We're going to spend 50 billion rebuilding the place. And now people kind of got the idea that, oh, the, the European Union is going to rebuild Ukraine. Well, they won't rebuild it with 50 billion. I reckon it'll cost about a trillion to rebuild Ukraine. And where's the money going to come from? How much of that will the European taxpayer have to fork out for? And they're already saying uh, they're, they're afraid that they don't want they don't want to uh, upset the hornet's nest, and they're wary about saying, "Oh, we give we're going to, we obviously need to give a couple of hundred million or at least uh, towards the week." They're putting ahead fifty at the moment, and but this is really just for starters. And 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 I asked them, well, I said, given that it's going to cost about a trillion to rebuild Ukraine, I says, anyone that thinks this is going to be uh, Ukraine is going to be built for less than a hundred billion, I says, is living in cuckoo land. I said, given that's going to cost at least a trillion, where's the, where's the money going? Uh, uh, 50 billion, I said, it's not going to go very far. I said, where's the rest of the money coming from? Oh, well, he says, there's, there's the frozen assets the Russians have. We'll have to get them. But there's actually a problem with them because it's illegal to take them. And if they breach international law, and it wouldn't be the first time that we breach international law, but if they do it on this case, they're setting the precedent and nobody will be safe and everybody will breach it when they, see, when they feel like it. Because this, as a rule, is not breached, right? But if they take this money from the Russians, that it was it was money that the Russians had in banks outside of Russia, and the the Europeans froze it, right? And the Americans, if they ta- and that's about three hundred billion. If they take that, then it's is it's a precedent that would be followed by others, and it's uh, it remains to be seen whether they can get it. They said the member states will put up money. They said. Now, obviously, that's taxpayers' money from the individual member states as well. Uh, they said that uh, private sector will have to put up money. Now, and I'll touch on that in a sec, but they also said, and rich people in Ukraine, they should pay towards it. Now, U- Ukraine has plenty of oligarchs, billionaires, right? The place is, U- Ukraine is well known and uh, was, est- was established as much by the European Court of Auditors as one of the most corrupt countries in Europe. Right, when they did an audit only, only five months before the war started. But the idea that they're going to get the oligarchs to pay for the reconstruction of Ukraine, well, I would say good luck with that one. Uh, but anyways, we, we were debating over the terms of this 50 billion money that we're giving to Ukraine. First of all, two-thirds of it, at the moment, two-thirds of it is going to be in the form of, of a loan and one-third is a grant. Now, I've actually argued that if you want to help Ukraine, you're actually going to have to give them more grants and less loans. I said, this place was already a basket case before the war started because it's, it's, it's run in a very corrupt manner and they have huge debts. I said, you're going to kill them with debt. I said, and by doing that, they'll be controlled by private business interests from outside of Ukraine, the West. The West will own Ukraine. They're already buying up a huge portion of the land for a fraction of its real value. They're already doing that. They reckon the Americans own more land now in Ukraine than Russia have taken during the war. Now think about that one. 
But anyways, this money of the 50 billion, let's go back to just the 50 billion that we're given at the moment, uh, between now and 2027. We were arguing over the conditions. Like, for example, uh, we were saying that Ukraine has to return to being a democracy because they've banned all the opposition parties, right? I mean, it's an authoritarian government now, right? All the opposition, anyone that doesn't like the government uh, got banned, right? Now, they've also banned opposition media. And I was trying to get uh, an amendment in, uh, making it a condition that you have to uh, have free media and that the, the media, he has to lift the bans on, on all the opposition media that he doesn't like. But I couldn't, I couldn't get it in. I couldn't get the amendment in. There is the amendment on um, on multi-party uh, elections is in, uh, but not uh, a strict uh, protection for the media. Now, there was huge debate over uh, the Greens, in fairness to them, put in some very good amendments on environmental dimensions to the money, how the money is used. Now, this was fought tooth and nail by over half the people in the room, the right wing. Renew, EPP and the, the, the right wing, um, they, were, they were fighting like mad. Uh, against this how can you be talking about environmental measures about a country that's been destroyed by a war well I said well, I'll tell you what now I said and the Greens you know, uh, Van uh fought well on us she was very impressive on us right and uh, I said right I stopped for a minute I said I'll tell you what I said can I just introduce an idea I said and uh, one fella had just said, oh, we're in a majority here. Uh, we have a majority on this. Uh, let's stop arguing about it. Uh, the people uh, wanting the environmental protections are in a minority. And I said, well, look, can I appeal to the majority for a minute? I said, we're going to spend billions and billions of European taxpayers' money rebuilding Ukraine. I said, this country has been destroyed by the Russian bombing. I said... And you're actually starting from scratch with a lot of mm. uh, new infrastructure. I said, there's no better time, I said, to do things right than at the start. So I said, forget about the environment for a minute. Just take it from business, I said. Let's look at this from a business angle, I said. You're saying that you just want Ukraine in the EU within a year or two or three. Okay, I said. You're saying now that you don't want to do things in rebuilding Ukraine like you would do in a European country because they're actually not in the EU yet and it's an emergency situation. But I said, from a business point of view, I said, you're going to spend money now. You're not going to put in the environmental protections and the good measures, even though now is the time to do it because we're starting from scratch. You want to postpone that. So then when we do bring them into the EU, because and Ukraine more than likely will come into the EU at some stage in the next few years, right? Not quite as soon as they might think, but I'm sure they will come in at some stage. But I said, so then we're going to spend more money doing it right so that they come up to European standards when they're in the European Union? I said, where's the business sense of that, I said? You're going to spend all this money not doing it right uh, so that you have to, and then you're going to spend the same money again later on. Give me a break. Well, do they agree with you? I'm afraid not. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, yeah. No, but yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, there's some real scary stuff. 
around this, right? And I was actually reading, I'm reading some research. The European Parliamentary Research Service uh, have done some stuff on it, and they're kind of analysing the, the the Parliament position on it and the Commission's uh, uh, position on all this, right? And they're saying. Uh, They've already admitted that the World Bank assesses Ukraine's reconstruction at 383 billion, and that was uh, six months ago. But it won't stop at a trillion anyway, won't right? But they're talking about um, when Ukraine wins the war. There's not a word about them not winning it. And they're, they're, it won't be called a win unless they get all their territory back. Well, they won't get Crimea back uh, uh, without a nuclear war. So, I mean, why don't people actually call this out and actually uh, address these issues? Because they're, they're, they're actually hiding behind it. They won't admit that we're actually looking at a nuclear war before uh, Ukraine actually takes back Crimea, which the Russians see as theirs uh, forever at this stage, right? Mm. There's but, certainly no but, military But they're, they're, they're talking about uh, an, an ultimate victory for Ukraine. And they're talking about... Uh, how important it is for Ukraine to go into NATO for security reasons, and until we get him into NATO, we have to establish, uh, we have to spend a fortune giving them the security as if they were in NATO. They're talking about uh, getting private uh, sector to invest in it. Now the private sector are already investing in buying up the land cheap, but they want to get huge private sector investment in Ukraine, and they're coming up with what's called a war insurance. They're literally going to insure investment funds to invest in Ukraine and that if anything goes wrong because of the war continuing or more war later on or whatever, that they'll be insured. This is a new thing. And this is going to cost a lot of money. A war insurance. Well, look at all of this is all about the money and this false idea that we're involved in a, a war between democracy and authoritarianism is just an absolute joke given as you touched off, make the level of corruption and anti-democratic uh, measures that exist in Ukraine even before the war, um, they are causing some concern. I mean, we had a meeting with Europol. We're in every every twice a year. We I'm on the Europol scrutiny group, which is pr doesn't do much scrutinising now, I can tell you, but with representations of MEPs and members of the national parliaments. And one of the topics was about the massive... Um, I suppose, collaboration between Ukraine and Europol, which on one level is sensible and one of the biggest threats being obviously weapons trafficking, that we're pumping in billions of arms and weapons into Ukraine. A lot of that is going missing. Is it being monitored? Is it coming back to Europe? Not to mind the fighters who are going in and coming back as well and the level of organised crime uh, around that. So these are, are very serious questions for any society really you know and that whole area of corruption and big business and you know Ukrainian oligarchs is a serious issue and of course oligarch is just as we've said before it's just another word for billionaire they just use it because it looks sound sinister you know yeah and uh, I think while we're looking at a 17% increase in food across Europe because of the war um, it's like as if the, the European not only are we sacrificing uh, the, the less well off in Ukraine uh, to this war and that we, the, the military buyers can't even talk about them but we're actually uh, we're, we're letting this become a, a, a battle of ideologies right and one of the just I'll read a small uh, piece from this, this research paper again on the Ukraine facility and it says a democratic Ukraine based on the rule of law and with a successful market economy 
could act as a beacon of freedom and prosperity and thus as a successful catalyst for democratic change in the whole of Eastern Europe, including in Russia, Belarus and other former Soviet republics. And then the quote Zelensky, who said that Russia's bosses were afraid of democracy. I mean, God help me, Lord. I think it's absolutely I sick. Mean, that this they, is comic book stuff. It is, and they talk about rule of law and democracy, and one of the things they love to bandy around is the whole area of sanctions. And we wouldn't normally be fond of quoting Politico, but they've did a very good piece on, I suppose, the hypocrisy of the European Union being on incredibly shaky ground legally in terms of the way in which they've been using sanctions to, to target Russian oligarchs, as they call them, who are billionaires. And there's about 1,600 of them, which is a lot of them. And we're not going to be, um, you know, crying over rich Russians any more than we cry over rich Irish people or other people like that. But a lot of the evidence has come to light now about the basis upon which people have been put on the sanction list by the EU. And it is absolutely rubbish. Like they have these um, papers which Politico got their hands on and they were labelled as limite, which means don't show them to the public, the basis for how people got on the sanction list. But a lot of them were kind of open source documents like Wikipedia, which were false. There was one that they used was a, a lifestyle magazine in Russia, which kind of does more about soup recipes and meals recipes than it does about news. And it was an article about people in this magazine was used to say, that's a Russian oligarch close to Putin, you know, slap sanctions on them. I mean, slapping sanctions on you means you can't do business outside Russia. You can't travel. All of this kind of thing. They, you know, so they, the evidence in which they've been doing it on is really, really slim. And they've been caught out in the courts. Now, I raised this when I was a shadow on the whole new area of e the EU is creating a new crime, criminalization of people who cooperate and work to undermine the sanctions, if you like. So the third parties who might deal with these, it's just a nonsense, the whole thing. Um, and again, the, the legal basis upon which the EU is doing it is very flimsy. I mean, we use the case of uh, Prigozhin's mother was on the sanctions list a good few times. Now, I have no necessarily sympathy for Mrs. Prigozhina or whatever. Don't know anything about her. But what I do know is that she was put on the sanctions list on a false basis in terms of so-called assets that she owned, which she didn't. She's been to the court, challenged it successfully, the European courts, and then they just changed the basis for which she sanctioned and brought her back to court again. Now, it's not about necessarily feeling bad for these people, but you can't on the one hand say to other countries, got to obey the rule of law and, and legal basis and then go and do the opposite themselves. But this is just European hypocrisy. And, and the Russians are winning the cases in the courts, which is just um, a bit embarrassing for the EU, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's all a bit mad. Mm. But um, we're, um, as the Italians say, this place has become a bit of a casino. And there's sometimes I wonder, are the wheels coming off? Yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. And hypocrisy is nothing strange. I mean, they were out today, given out or yesterday, given out about the Bosnian Serb parliament who have a, a new law coming in calling NGOs foreign agents and, and, and the EU calling them, please stop this, as they did with Georgia. And we'll be dealing with Georgia next week. But of course, the EU itself is doing its own law about foreign funding of organisations in their societies. And that's OK. So do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um the amount of and we we had we actually had um, 
a slot on the plenary last week as well, you know, about, about this whole thing, you know, the threat to democracy in Europe. Uh, it's all these foreign agents and these foreign countries, all these bad countries, authoritarian countries. The biggest threat to democracy in Europe is right within our own borders. Mm. And, but they're not prepared to admit that. And I tell you what, uh, the foreign agents, uh, there's a lot more uh, American-funded NGOs and other kinds of agencies in Europe at the moment than Russian and Chinese. I like it. There's, uh, there's no comparison in the numbers. Well, in some ways, it's an interesting one, and we, we'll maybe return to it again because I've just got the rapporteurship of a file on NGOs now, uh, and we'll be kind of balancing between a couple of things on it because on the one hand, there, it's true that some NGOs and civil society groups play a really good role in kind of holding big business to account in the likes of Western Europe or in the advanced capitalist countries, I suppose. But in other countries, they're being used as a block used for regime change to make those other developing countries more susceptible and under the thumb more of big business. So the ones that are under attack in the West are under attack because they're too good at challenging big business. And the ones in the East are being used to undermine local governance by people in those developing societies to pave the way for big business. So either way, they're not good. And uh, it's all about empowering people to take uh, ownership of their own resources in their own countries and work in cooperation with people in other countries rather than trying to go in and rape and pillage for your own advantage, which colonialism and empire has done through since the beginning of time. Yeah, and, and just on the subject of NGOs and uh we are fairly cynical of a lot of them because it's all about uh, if an NGO comes to you, the first question you have to ask them, who pays you? Where are you getting your funding from? But uh, on the subject of NGOs, I'd just like to mention the fact that there actually is some uh, very good NGOs out there too. They might be in a minority, but there is some very good NGOs. And I was reading a very interesting article uh, by one of them today. Uh, it's actually called ARC 2020. And they've done, they've done an analysis on uh, the, 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 on the Irish cap, right? And they said that Ireland did the bare minimum to ensure fairness under the new cap. And it's actually covered in the Irish Farmers Journal uh, uh, today. And uh, it's a very interesting article. Well, they're a really good NGO because they deal with not just the importance of having uh, good environmental practices around agriculture, but also the socioeconomic relations and the need for equality and fairness as well. And I think that is as has been announced now in the last few days about the EU extending glyphosate for another 10 years. I a mean, critique that, on, on our agricultural sector is very necessary. They're killing us all. I mean, that is scary. I mean... Yeah. Uh, obviously, Roundup at home might be better. Glyphosate used at home, uh, most people would know it as Roundup. And it's a weed killer. Uh, it's used uh, on crops as well. Uh, it kills weeds in in certain crops. and uh, But it's incredibly bad for our health. It gets into the food chain and it's been proven to be cancerous. And the idea that they're going to extend its lifetime and allow it to be legal for up to another 10 years uh, makes you scared. Sure does. And on that not so happy note. <laughs> well, we don't have a lot of time left, but um, yeah, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. We're going to bring you a lot of other really interesting stuff in the coming weeks. So, uh, what's goodbye in Catalan? Fins aviat. Well, that's see you soon. Fins aviat. Fins aviat. Fins aviat. Fins aviat.